Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN, Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? He's trying to come up with an answer to the question. Go ahead, Richard. You could be right, but you're wrong. (laughs) Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, Entrepreneurship and Leadership NBN channel listeners. Today on our show, we have Ashutosh who's coming to us, I believe, from India, and Kimon, who's also with me here in Krakow. If Jenny, I mean, if, we, if you start off with maybe briefly what you're doing now, but then go back into the past. Okay. And maybe talk about, about the, the, the origin, because you've had quite a varied career. Okay. So, uh, you know, as of now, I mean, I'm, I'm 64 years old, uh, and uh, I'm currently running what I think is a very exciting platform, bringing stories of successful people from around the world. I've had an interesting conversation with Richard about his journey. And I've spoken to a little over 500 guests in the last two years. But let me start with telling you uh, my, about my own story. So I was born in uh, a middle-class uh, home. My father was a very senior retired army brigadier general, highly decorated soldier, twice awarded by the president of India for once in battle, once in civil time. Uh, two younger brothers, uh, grew up in a very, very happy home, uh, went on to do my MBA from one of the prim- prim- premier business schools in India. And when I was 21 and a half, I joined uh, uh, British American Tobacco or India Tobacco. So India Tobacco is a subsidiary of British American Tobacco. Uh, worked for multiple divisions. Uh, and uh, by the time I was 33, 34, I was appointed uh, managing director of one of the group companies when we used to live in Singapore. Um, That carried on for another three years. In 97, I quit the corporate world and I moved into aerospace. Um, And I was head of Asia for uh, the satellite group of Lockheed Martin and then the satellite group for Hughes. And then in 2003, uh, when the chairman of Hughes told me, pack your bags and move to Germantown, America, Maryland, I discussed with my wife and I decided I'd had enough. So I quit the corporate world. Um, I I, I can talk about my family a little later. But, you know, when I wrote my first book uh, in 2010, which is seven years after I started uh, my entrepreneurial journey, I said that on the 1st of April 2003, which is when I quit the corporate world, I woke up in the morning and I suddenly realized that I had no office, no assistant, no uh, calendar uh, appointment. And uh, I said, I suddenly realized I had joined the ranks of the educated unemployed in India. Um, And, you know, for about five, six months, uh, I was 45 and a half at that time. Uh, That is when I said that, uh, you know, I've earned enough. Uh, I'm going to play lots of golf and I'm going to really retire early, which a lot of people like to talk about or at least fantasize about. But I realized in two months that I couldn't possibly be doing nothing and playing golf uh, seven days a week. So uh, I started to look at various uh, things to do. I had a small investment in a small hospital uh, in, uh, in Delhi. And when I started to look at the pharmacies uh, inside the hospital, that's where I realized that here was an interesting opportunity waiting to be exploited. 
so uh, i decided uh, at that time that uh, let me start thinking of what i can do and i wrote my first business plan with the first line which said build boots in india boots as you know is uh, the uk's largest chain and i was very familiar with boots because i used to be in in british american tobacco offices four or five times a year so i decided you know this was uh, an interesting model to follow uh, i'm not a pharmacist i'm not uh, have no no idea about the pharmaceutical uh, industry or i did not have any idea but i was, i said let me i mean i've had enough experience as a general management person i hired a pharmacist and opened a small 300 square foot store um my assistant who was with me in hughes had moved with me and i remember she called my my wife and said that how will how on earth is mr gar going to you know pay my salaries by selling you know a few medicines uh, no one believed me that you know we could build it into a strong chain but as it so happened uh, the the company grew and uh, over for 14 or 15 years it became india's largest chain of pharmacies um, and uh, you know when i when i turned 60 uh, four years ago i decided that was the time for me to uh, exit and i sold the business it was a nice uh, business to sell at that time exited at the right time um, since then i've done several things uh, i didn't want to get into active employment with anyone i did not want to get into a routine uh, entrepreneurship role which would have meant you know 18 20 hours of work um i've been a member of this uh, incredible organization called the ypo which uh, um used to be called the young presidents organization so i've been a ypo member for 27 years and uh, you know i was roped in to be the chairman of uh, ypo for south asia uh, for 2 years which you know i had the time so i was able to devote enough time to them and uh, you know that's when i decided that let me do something different than those telling stories let me backtrack now a little bit uh, uh, in 2010 i wrote my first book which was my book titled the buck stops here my journey from a manager to an entrepreneur and uh, that is when i you know the big book it was almost a 350 page book published by penguin and then i uh, once i started writing and i i've i've always written uh, i've always written a lot i've written for financial papers i've written, i've had a column in some of the best selling uh, english magazines in india uh, so uh, when i got the, my first book out then somehow the other that little uh, um, you know mind block which you have of not being able to write a book that disappeared and i wrote uh, you know six books uh, and i've got my seventh book that has gone in for publication which will be released in uh, march 2021 uh when i published my sixth book uh, which was a book titled the brand called you uh, a book that was entirely on personal branding that is when i realized that uh, here was an opportunity for me to start telling stories of people who uh, are doing incredible work all over the world uh, and uh, are not normally spoken about uh, primarily because in, in almost every country only 15 20 people are spoken about all the time when there are in fact thousands of amazing stories so i said let me start reaching out to multiple people uh, which i did through my own uh, large network of friends and then i started to say that okay now let me start reaching out to friends of friends so uh, you know i started what i can now call my crowdsourcing of guests 
from uh, you know my existing guests and i started asking everyone please uh, recommend three names so richard has also recommended a few people um and that's how it started to grow now i did no idea this will grow into such a large platform uh but it is growing very very rapidly um i've got now two more hosts uh who are now who come in on board and more want to come on board so i think it's just evolving into something fascinating i don't know what i'm going to do with it because i'm not doing it for monetization as of now but maybe at a later date people have started writing to me for to start offering me sponsorships etc but i'm not taking anything right now what is also very uh, you know uh, interesting is and i'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about the platform and how it is evolving but let me now take a step back again and talk a little bit about my family because everything that i have been able to do is because i've had an incredibly supportive family uh, my wife uh, veera is an academician uh, she's an educator she is a historian um, and probably one of the well known well known historians from india uh, she teaches at the american embassy school uh, one of the senior most ib teachers and uh, not only is she an ib teacher but she also sets the global ib history paper uh, you know every year she sets the, the paper um so she has been an incredible strength and an incredible support for everything that i have done uh, we have two sons uh, the uh, older one is now 35 his, his name is varun uh, he is an mba from the london business school and he spent the first 13 years of his working life with american express and now is in singapore and now he is the senior director with visa in singapore uh, our younger son is 33 he is a senior director with procter and gamble in uh, the us he now runs rather he's now in uh, bentonville fayetteville so he runs the gillette brand for walmart and uh, you know that's my entire family uh, you know my brothers uh, everyone lives in singapore so out of all of us uh, my extended family the only two people who live in india now are my wife and me um my interests uh, i i i they said i write a lot uh, i play the indian flute um i am i love my golf um and i like i you know enjoy reading and listening to music so that's a quick capsule i mean i thought it would be quick but it's taken me almost 10 minutes uh, of talking to be able to give you my background very very interesting i mean from my perspective you had uh, just took some notes there were several like critical moments and those are the things i like to to focus on is uh, okay. the first one was the tobacco to aerospace mm-hmm. i mean that does not sound uh like there's a whole lot of um synergy i mean maybe unless you're just doing management uh sort of general management like so what how did that happen and why i mean it seems like a completely yeah unusual move to jump from tobacco to aerospace so so, so you know uh, uh india tobacco is not <clears throat> just a tobacco company Uh, it it is primarily tobacco but it also owns uh, one of the largest chain of hotels in india it's in uh, food products it's in agricultural products they didn't um, build spaceships though there do they they don't but uh, i'm sure you know that india is one of the four major space powers yes yes but tobacco and spaceships i didn't really see very tobacco. different <laughs> but uh, you know i had reached a level where sorry exactly maybe the astronauts will start smoking <laughs> <laughs> absolutely uh, no so uh, I think you know I'd reached a level where, where I was more in general management by the time I was 35 36 years old 
So I was really taken in as the CEO of a large aerospace company. Okay. And uh, I mean, I think those eight years were probably the most fascinating eight years I've spent uh, because I was in an area that I had no idea about. And, uh, you know, I was involved in two large geostationary satellite launches. Um, wow. And each, each satellite is about six and a half tons. And, when, and when, I assume when, they're, quite, they're quite expensive. They're there. Uh, well, uh, the satellite is about $250 million. Exactly. The, the uh, launch is about $250 million. And the insurance is about $250 million. So exactly. That's, that's a big... You right. can't, you can't I, afford it. Not on your watch, at least. Not on my watch, absolutely. <laughs> but you know, what's okay. fascinating about these satellites is when, when they're up at 36,000 kilometers above uh, Earth, and when they open up the entire solar panels and the solar arrays, uh, from end to end, they're probably as large as a football field, just to give you a perspective, how big these big birds are. That's yeah, that is, and there's a yeah, there's a lot of space up there, but uh, it's getting more and more cluttered. As I don't know if you have you heard much about the uh, the clutter, the space clutter. I'm not yes. sure is that something that um, ever affected you in that, like the idea that I guess it could get destroyed. I mean, is there any issue with launching and like risking? I mean, you have this massive investment, and you have all that you know, debris the, the, going around. In the, the surprising the, thing is that, uh, or not surprising, but I mean, the amazing thing is that. Every piece of space debris is very carefully tracked. Ah, okay. So unless it is, if it is space debris, but if it's an if it's an asteroid, then you don't know. You know <laughs> right, so that but the, out yeah, of the debris. The, so they know every single piece of debris. So you can they, time, they you can plan your launches in such a way Correct. that you're, you're, you're relatively safe. Yes. Okay. Cool. Shoot up and blow. The Chinese shot down a satellite, or they fired a projectile and blew something up in the. Correct. Correct. So, and I can't think that they track all the bits of debris from that. No, a lot of that, you know, a lot of this destruction happens when a satellite is re-entering or when it's being damaged. And when it re-enters uh, uh, the, the, the space or the, the, the Earth's atmosphere, it, it burns itself up. So, so I, I wanted to ask about, and if you look at your career, and thank you so much for this sort of, this expansive description. And, you know, on the one hand, it looks like success after success, you know, successful, you know, good family, uh, good degree, good career. So like everything went, went, seemed to be going right. And if you come from, and, and you were very, I wouldn't say you were very sort of truthful and accurate about it, but it didn't sound like you were sort of showing off or sort of making a big deal of yourself. You're just describing what happened. And other people could make a bigger deal about how successful they were and how wonderful it all was. But did you feel like an internal pressure to, quote, be successful? Or were you brought up to think in terms of what you were doing for other people? I was just wondering where your, if you looked at where your internal motivations came from to do what you did, was it more your environment, a product of your upbringing, or do you feel it's your character coming through in, in your life? I, I think, uh, Richard, it's, it's a combination of both. Uh, my, my father, who I was extremely close to, I mean, until the day he passed away six years ago, I think uh, I used to speak to him two or three times a day, and I used to, he was also used to live in Delhi. And I used to meet him for lunch uh, three, sometimes four days a week. You know, I used to drive down and, uh, you know, so, so I, he and I were very, very close. Uh, from, a, from a middle class background where, 
me and both my younger brothers are always told that the only thing that you have to be uh, conscious about are your values and your ethics. And, and that's about it. And then he used to say that uh, when you are, you know, when I was in, in school, in like all, I, I wanted to grow my hair long and I wanted to, you know, whatever the fashion of the day was. And he always told us that, you know, remember that you must try and get accepted in society by what you have inside your head rather than the way you are, you know, looking or the kind of clothes you're wearing, right? So I think those are things that are always stayed with us. So did that, imp did you grow your hair long or that, did that I did. impact you? You did, okay. No, no, I did. I've had, yeah, I've had a conversation with my daughter actually, who has mm -hmm. some tattoos and so, and tattoos are more and more common. Um, it's incredible how tattoos have become much more common. And, and she was concerned about exactly this thing. Oh, do I have a tattoo that somebody can see? I don't know, maybe on my, like, is that something that would affect my business, my ability to do business? How will people perceive me? And it's exactly, it's exactly the same thing. So from your perspective, because I also told her actually the same thing, which no, it's actually what's, what you are that yeah. matters, but. Correct. But no, I mean, I, you know, we did everything that we had to. I mean, you know, I had long hair. I put a little band around my head because it, it was... So you were a hippie, be, basically. In those days, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, but, you know, uh, the other thing that I was taught by my father and I, I told both my sons is that every morning when you are standing alone in front of the mirror, shaving, and if you can look at yourself and say that I did not knowingly harm anybody, I did not do anything wrong, that's the only justification you need to give to yourself. If you can look at yourself and say that, you don't need to worry about anything anyone else may say to you. And I think that is something that I have held as a value all my life. Uh, that if I know I'm, I'm right, that's good enough for me. I, uh, is it okay to ask a challenging question? Sure. Yeah. So some people would say, and I, I can give my version of this story because I, I, I sometimes look back and think, my opinion has changed. You worked in British in, in the tobacco industry. Many people regard the tobacco industry as a sin industry, like gambling or alcohol. And did you ever have qualms about the fact you were devoting yourself to a product that, in some ways, does harm people? You know, uh, first and foremost, when I joined the industry in 1979, uh, there was not so much of uh, an anti-tobacco lobby. That is one point. But as I started to understand it, while I, I never smoked um, for some strange reason, even though there were everyone who works at cigarette companies are allowed to get free cigarettes, I've, I've never smoked. But there are two or three different aspects to it. Number one is that uh, it's an industry that supports a very, very large number of farmers. Right? So therefore, uh, without, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story, when uh, when I was much younger, I was, uh, you know, I was a part of a team that was going to buy tobacco. And I remember this one instance where there was, a, there was an open Jeep with a, with a box full of cash kept inside it. And there was just one guard who would be sitting there with a stick. And that Jeep with all the cash was in an open uh, area which was probably over 50 or 60 square kilometers was driving around with the buyer who was going and inspecting bales and paying cash on the spot and the jeep was safer than the vault of a bank 
because every farmer knew that if this money gets stolen, there'll be no one who will buy the crop and the crop will rot. So the point I'm trying to make to you is that uh, tobacco always has had, not always, but for a long last 30, 40 years has had ethical issues. But uh, when you're working for an organization uh, at that particular time, uh, those issues did not crop up in mind. Yes, because I, I remember my first business success was selling industrial automation and we were selling labeling systems and British mm -hmm. American Tobacco in Poland was a big client of mm -hmm. ours. And I remember the sales engineer came in and said, oh, we've got a good sales lead. And it was a very big project. So Correct. Very, he was very excited. And I suddenly found myself going through this rationalization that historically I would say, well, you know, I would never work in tobacco mm -hmm. because it's bad. And I thought, well, you know, then we're going to put labels on the pallets of tobacco. And well, and I was thinking, well, someone has to do that. And I realized that, you know, you know, does the photocopier company that sells photocopier paper to British American tobacco say no? Does the electricity company say no? Yeah. And I find that all my kind of prior rationalizations crumbled in the face of business reality that you, know, you really and obviously the, there might be limits like the you know you know the secret police in a country like belarus you might say i'm just not going to do business with these people hmm. so I, I managed to rationalize them. i have a different question um so you you sound like and i'm sure you are like a super nice guy and you know a lot of what you've been presenting is just the, you know the ethical looking at yourself in the mirror and mm -hmm. um but I, I have to believe that because I actually, and this is one of the things I want to explore always, is that um, when you were growing up, did you play sports or did you do things competitively? Sure. And so, would you consider yourself a competitive person? I am. Yes. I am very competitive. You know, and it, it, so, see, you have to uh, partition uh, you know, life uh, very, very differently. I mean, now when I play golf, I, I'm very competitive. But does that mean that, uh, you know, I've got to take the other guy's head off? Uh, my answer is no. 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 Right? But uh, you want to win. Is the point is that there's no way. My, my take is that you built this, the, the largest uh, pharmaceutical chain, the phar yeah. pharmacy chain, sorry, in, uh, in India. Uh, you definitely want to win. I, I think that that has to be somewhere in there. You definitely want to no, win. No, no. If I didn't have the desire to win, I wouldn't be pushing myself yeah. to do so, do so many. Yeah. I mean, my, my, my uh, podcast platform, the 500 videos, I think it's probably one of the larger <laughs> platforms in the world with corporate yeah. stories. And yeah. it's growing by another 40, 50 every month. So, so yes, of course, I, you know, I, I want to win. So where I'm does that office. come from? That's, that's what I like to So where do you think that comes from? You're, you're just born that way? You think you're just like, are your brother, like, is it a family thing? Are your brothers uh, also very competitive? Or are, is are. your family competitive? Like, how does, where does it come from, basically? Do you think? Uh, so I, I, I would you know, step back, for example. You know, I have a new book coming out on failure, and I've, and that what, what my hypothesis is, if the parents in South Asia don't teach their children, it's okay to fail. Mm -hmm. We are always told you have to be first uh, in class in whatever you're doing. Uh, you have to make sure, you know, that if, you, if there's a line, try and figure out how you go to get in, a, get in the front of the line and so on and so forth. And uh, I've always, I know, I've said this for a long time that I don't think this is the right thing to do. But I did, I did grow up in an environment where uh, it was uh, extremely competitive. I mean, uh, when I was growing up, India had a population of, uh, uh, of one, maybe seven, 800 million people. Today, we are 1.3 billion people, right? So right. 
there is always this uh, need to be able to win. Uh, you know, if you look at, say, uh, admissions into business school, you probably will have 10,000 people applying and only 30 will get in. Yeah. Right? So, so therefore, uh, competition is, is a part of life in our, in our country. But uh, do you, uh, you know, uh, did I reach a stage where I, for me, was win uh, at the cost of anything? Uh, that was not, the, not, not, uh, not true. Uh, and again, I would relate it back to the fact that there are a lot of things that we are taught as as Hindus. You know, where uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard of uh, one of the, the the major Hindu books called the Gita, uh, where and I'm sure you've heard the word karma. Uh, you know, bad karma and good karma, but right. karma right. is really what your deeds are. Mm-hmm. And if you do your deeds well, uh, based on whatever you're supposed to be doing, um, the the results will follow. So it's it's a combination of uh, comp- you know being ambitious, being competitive, and yet uh, being able to neutralize the so-called negative impacts of uh, competition and uh, ambition with uh, you know what 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 you uh, what you deserve to get you will get. You 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 touched on something, and I and you started to say it, and I think your book, and I think that's actually. So the essence of what you're saying is because now that I'm thinking about it, it is the way we manage. Because if you talk to anybody who's an entrepreneur, it is the way we manage failure. And in fact, it's the it's the it's the not not the fear of failure because I think it's the fear that paralyzes people more than the actual failure itself. People are afraid. Oh, how what are people going to think of me? I didn't. I was supposed to do this and I failed. And 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 maybe maybe is that possibly the thing? Is that you were ready to do things? That, and so I'm just saying, like, what's the, you know, you submit to an enormous country, you're, you have an, you know, this incredible, basically competitive environment, and somehow you rose to the top. I mean, I, you know, I'm just trying to identify, like, what are the things? And maybe is, is it possible that one of these things was, was actually that you were just like, you know what, you know, I, if I fail, I'll try again. And, you know, I'll figure it out eventually. I mean, would you say that that, that was the... So, you know, uh, in my narrative, it may have sounded like there's been absolutely no failure. But I mean... Uh, you know, there have been incredible number of failures, incredible number of failures in, at work, as a professional manager, as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I, I went with, you know, I'm much older than both of you, but in, in the 1999 2000 dot com boom, I mean, you know, I must have put money uh, into three or four different companies and all of them went bust, you know, so. Pet, so pet it's not com. The, Sorry? Pet.com. <laughs> Do you remember? No, I didn't do pet.com. No, I'm joking. But, there was this hilarious. Uh, Dot com businesses, basically. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I lost, I lost a lot of money at that time. But there have been failure in relationships. There have been failure in uh, at work as an entrepreneur. So, you know, the the point again is, uh, and again, that's that's exactly what I'm trying to write. Uh, you know, I have a whole section on uh, for entrepreneurs, where what do you do when you fail? You know, and uh, we've had some celebrated. Uh, uh, Suicides uh, because of an entrepreneur who was very big, uh, and and I was thinking about it, and I said, why would a person on a on a failure do this? Take take the extreme st- uh, step, and my realization basically was that uh, it's not the hurt that is caused to you as an entrepreneur, which is the reason only that you take such steps, but uh, society in general, uh, in in uh, a lot of countries. And again, I've said that in countries which are much more risk-taking, for example, in California, you know, 
if you if you uh, you know fail as an entrepreneur a lot of people say okay no problem try again but in some of the more conservative economies you know if you look at say india today is changing or if you look at japan or if you look at germany or you know these are or, or saudi arabia uh, some of these countries psych- psychologically they don't accept entrepreneurial failure very well so therefore there is a worry of an entrepreneur if i fail what will society say to me uh you have investors you have people who have who are other stakeholders you have suppliers a lot of them lose money right and then on top of all that you lose your own credibility and uh, fall in your own own in your own, own in your own eyes so i think it's a combination of all these things that affects entrepreneurial failure rather than just one or two aspects very interesting and i i i want to come back to that and i was thinking about the challenges that an entrepreneur faces that they're not ready for that i had a very elite education in the uk by mm-hmm. british standards but nothing prepared me for the life of being in business and i remember very first had to fire someone and they'd done something unethical mm-hmm. and it was damaging to the company and there was no question that i had to fire them but i remember i i really had a sleepless night and i was thinking that nothing in my in my beautiful education prepared me for the reality correct yes it's not an issue and just how to do it and i was wondering if in your career the things that you found that you struggled with were were there like your equivalents of that the things that you really thought well i've got this beautiful nice family good education and now i have to do this and i just don't know how to handle that or i'm not ready for that um the answer is yes and no i mean you know when 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 i was younger it was very difficult uh, at one stage to be able to turn around and tell someone that oh listen you're not performing uh, and it's time for you to leave um but again i was fortunate in a company like uh, india tobacco the systems were so so strong that uh, if someone was not performing uh, the organization would beat them out and put them aside however as an entrepreneur by the time i and i i'm a late starter you know i i started when i was 45 years of between 45 and 46 by which time i think i had become uh, you know battle hardened uh, with 25 years in the corporate sector uh, so, so when i got people in uh, i would uh, i i did have uh, the the resilience or the strength inside me to tell a person you're fired uh, so uh, i i think that way i had a bit of an advantage yeah and so certainly very often this the image of the young entrepreneur is absolutely challenged by the facts that if you look into the facts you see that many founders are around your age and of course they've learned while someone else is paying them about, about these things and they've seen about okay. you know there's just one other point i'd love to add to this and i think again i've spoken about this often one of the reasons why entrepreneurs find it difficult to sack someone is because they are constantly worried that if i let go of a senior colleague that individual's entire workload will come on to me and therefore i i turn around and say let me continue with a suboptimal colleague till i find someone else because i don't have the time inclination or the bandwidth to take on more than my own role because you know in my own mind i'm i'm the strategist i'm i'm the founder i'm the promoter i'm the entrepreneur i'm i'm the person who runs strategy etc etc and i've hired all these people so very often entrepreneurs do not take strong action because of the fear of uh, having to do all that work in addition to everything they are doing 
I think there's something really interesting. I don't know if I'm, if it, but I'm wondering how much of this is cultural because I think it's so funny because you're you're talking from like sort of an Indian, um, uh, in, uh, uh, maybe more Asian perspective right. than where. And so I'm I, I'm 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 American and 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 you mentioned the suicide and 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 I was thinking the ego. Like I feel like um, we. Uh, and so you strike me as somebody without a huge ego and I can, and I can say that Richard and I, you know, we're, we, we know each other for a long time and, and both of us actually don't have like just gigantic egos, but I think ego is the thing that takes people down a lot of times. They say, this is not, the failure is me. Well, a business isn't you because it never is you. You need so many people and support, and all this, but, but, but people think it's me. I fail. I'm the failure. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned also about the, the workload. I, 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 I think that very often they don't like, cause I, I also haven't really struggled with that. Um, but I think they fail because of other reasons. It's just, it's not just, it, it, it's, they're, they're afraid that somebody will say, you don't like me. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you fire somebody, maybe they won't like me anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not the cool boss anymore. And I think ego, interestingly enough, and I wonder if it's cultural, I don't know, just, I was, you know, I work in a, a language business. I think a lot about uh, different cultures, basically, because that's what we do. We, we get things for people's local cultures, basically. We, we translate and we localize, actually. And I, do you think that, like, because, you, you know, you're, you've, I'm sure you're experienced and you've had, like, lots of exposure to different ways of thinking. Do you think mm-hmm. there's a, an Eastern and a Western oh, in this? Uh, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Culturally, uh, you know, Asia is, is far more, uh, accepting and tolerant of uh, of individuals who may not be performing to their potential, then I have seen, uh, you know, in 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 uh, say say the, the UK or the US. Uh, I remember when I was uh, take, when I took over uh, one of the satellite companies, uh, it had, and this was when I was thirty seven years old, uh, and I was, you know, this had a, a huge office on on Leicester Square. You know, one of the main buildings which used to have McDonald's, the, the seventh entire floor, 7,000 odd square feet, was the air, the satellite uh, technical office. And, uh, you know, the project had run into a problem for almost a year. The, you know, payments were being made. So my, I had just taken over as the CEO and I was told, go and, uh, you know, reduce overheads. And I think that's probably one of the most difficult two days that I spent because uh, they, I had to fire 60 technical people, all senior scientists and engineers. I, would, I was calling them in my office, handing them a letter of termination and giving them a check for two months salary. And uh, I know it, I went through some very, very serious soul searching on what am I doing. But uh, I had to do that. Right. Uh, it was, that it was the was only time I've done it. And that's, I don't think I've ever had to do such a large uh, firing it together. I've done it never to that extent because I didn't have such big organizations. But um, I've unfortunately done it. And from my perspective, again, it's not, it, it's for the company. You're actually, what you're doing is you're doing what you have to, it's actually for the rest I, of the people that you need. It's really for the rest of the people in the company to survive and go forward. I mean, you have to take these tough decisions. I mean, no, absolutely. Um, I, I, I have one thing. You guys are both strike me as very well educated. Like I'm just a regularly educated American guy, but you guys have like maybe the more premium educations. And, 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 and I find this is for me, one of the most interesting topics when it comes to entrepreneurship, because I'm sort of, and I know, and I can almost tell right now that you're definitely not going to be like this, but I'm sort of almost anti-education. Uh, I don't know what, like if for being 
okay, if you're going to be a medical doctor, you need to have an education. But for doing what we do, and let's say just for doing for what you do, and maybe we need to talk about the last, the second part of your journey, because you learned what you learned. You had your real education in, in the corporate world, I guess. How important is, like, what is your take on education? And, and actually to both of you, because I know Richard is also sort of very much his father as an Oxford professor, <laughs> was an Oxford professor. So Oxford, correct? It was Oxford, I think. So what, what do you think, I mean, about that? So, you know, again, uh, okay. Uh, so uh, in, in any traditional middle-class Indian family, and this has been there forever, education is the primary uh, input that is given to every child. And even today, from the poorest families that you can look at, uh, Parents will put whatever they can into educating their into educating their child. And if, as you said, uh, you know, a child gets into, say, a medical college or into an engineering college, uh, there are enough written about stories of parents selling land to pay for education. So maybe this is a historical where you know we are a five thousand year old. Society and there has always been a focus on education. On the other hand, maybe it's because of the very large population that we have, and parents believe that uh, uh, being educated will create the differentiation for you to be able to succeed. Right. So therefore, for, therefore, education is an integral part of the entire uh, nation of India. It's only now, and you know, there has been a lot of discussions that have been going on over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, it's only now that the government has for the first time amended the education policy and said that after you finish your class 12, you should have the ability to stream yourself either into uh, a craft that you are interested in. Uh, everyone does not have to go for an undergrad and everyone doesn't have to go for a postgrad, um, which uh, you know, used to happen. Education is very important. But from entrepreneurship, actually, that's really what I was focusing on the entrepreneurship side of it. Um, did you need, did it help you? It did. It did. Okay. It did. So, so, so I think that under the headline topic, education, you get different things uh, bundled up together. And it's obviously it's knowledge of facts and it's skills and competence. But then it's also character and values. And you know, you know, there's a huge difference between a good school and a bad school, and what the definition of a good school may be very irrelevant to the entrepreneurship journey. For the to the extent that I've often said that it's remarkable that at, at Winchester College, one of the oldest schools in the United Kingdom, and Cambridge University, I didn't have a single hour on personal effectiveness, on managing time, managing meetings, and getting things done. And if you think about the sort of, and interpersonal skills, and if you think about the things that are really important for entrepreneurs, it's getting things done, interpersonal skills, and self motivation. And so, you know, you can have a good education which isn't relevant. However, I think if you have a well-designed entrepreneurship course, that can be extremely relevant. And it doesn't address all of the things you need because it comes back to character and determination and internal motivation. And how do you teach someone to be highly motivated? That is an interesting... Grit. They call it grit. How do you teach grit? Yeah. I, I think the only way to teach grit is by the individual to learn it themselves. <laughs> 
exactly. I don't think anyone can teach you. But, you know, uh, Kimon, just to answer your question on education for entrepreneurs, uh, I used to teach a program on entrepreneurship at one of the top uh, business schools in India. Uh, you know, two years in a row, I ran a 13-class uh, two-hour uh, you know, program or two-and-a-half-hour program, um, which was you know, almost a 35, 40-hour uh, program that I, I taught. And, uh, you know, what was important, and that's what my learning as an entrepreneur was, that, you know, uh, in, in undergrad, if you want to study law, then you've got to study all kinds of law, which is of no relevance, right? So, therefore, for an entrepreneur, the company's act is far more important than studying about something else. Uh, you know, what entrepreneurs are never taught are the importance of fundraising. What entrepreneurs are never taught is how to go through uh, a term sheet when they're raising money. And what is the fine print in it? Now, those are all the important factors that must be taken into account if you're an entrepreneur. And that's what I was teaching for two years. Yeah, that's practical. I, I agree. I see, I, saw, I see some practical thing. I guess I'm just thinking about the pure sort of what you did, sort of probably what I did, um, starting from literally nothing. Like you have nothing. You set up that one pharmacy and you started it from there. I just don't know that there's a whole, a whole lot of like, lessons i mean i know yeah you need to know maybe some um <laughs> finance marketing you know but but like i i don't yeah I, I just find it hard i think that's why so many of the real entrepreneurs you see they don't even finish their their college education i mean it's sort of at least in the u.s that's like seems to be the the, the story very often that a lot of these people when you go through the you know I think, I've, I've discussed it with many people and yeah. i've had multiple uh you know, <laughs> discussions on this one subject <laughs> i think what happens is that when one dropout becomes a billionaire, you make a virtue out of being a dropout. Yeah, I, I don't think... I actually, agree. actually, it's the reverse process. I agree. I agree. Know, I agree. And if, 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 if that is a message, and I've, you know, yeah. in, with American I, universities I've, I've, and students I've spoken, yeah. Yeah. and I've often said, you know, while it's you know, very important to say that this multi-billionaire or this multi-billionaire is a dropout, uh, don't go that way. You yeah. think of the... Thousands of dropouts, and where are they? Yes, and that, no, that, there's no question about it. First of all, if somebody delves into why they dropped out, they started their business started to like boom, and then they said, "I need to focus on this rather yeah. than on this." It makes a lot more sense. And I'm yeah. not either. Just to be clear, I'm not suggesting people should drop out. Okay, I just think I, I, I think no, because I actually am a believer in completion. I think you need to, if you start something, you should complete it. And I think that's part of the grit in the entrepreneurial journey as well. Mm -hmm. If you start something, you should finish it, basically. I mean, unless you're, you know, you're blowing through money or, or if it was a business. But still, okay. I guess I was just trying to say, I think about what I learned and like other than math, because I think math was kind of important and I can figure stuff out and count like pretty well and like calculate probability and percentages and stuff like that. That was a valuable skill in business. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I don't know that I learned anything in the, the whole process, you know, of, uh, of the education, but that, that's why I like to, sure. I, but only for entrepreneurship, let's be clear. I mean, like a lot of things, I think you, you, um, you actually, you know, like an engineering or, or medical degree. That's cool. I, I will follow up Ashutosh. I'd like to learn more about your entrepreneurship teaching because I, I do short courses in business schools to this day and I'm, I'd love to learn and compare notes on what I I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to. I can, I can, I, I'll just look for my uh, program schedule of 13 classes and I can send it to you. That would be, that would be great. And I think one thing is project-based learning is one thing is actually learning by doing. You can actually build into a curriculum and give people projects. But a, a good example of the sort of thing that's 
hard to teach is simple things like if you've got a small retail premises or a small office, even how do you manage the keys so that, you know, you're just like to begin with, you've got the key and you're there. But then you think, well, I need to have a process for this. And it's it's not so simple. You can't just, can you give a key to everyone? And you start having to make, think, well, no, that's not very secure. If every- yeah, resourcefulness. I mean, you can, there's all these things that are... You study facilities management of how to manage shopping centers and office blocks. That's not that doesn't help. So there's a sort of lot of practical skills. But I wanted to ask you about leadership and how you how you what views you've um, came to on that because obviously in the corporate environment it's one kind of leadership, but it's a different thing taking a small individual pharmacy up to a larger organization. And did you have like a, a ready-made concept of what sort of leader you wanted to be and how you were going to lead? Or is it something that you learned, again, learned by doing? What, what sort of leader were you and have you any reflections to share on that? So uh, I would say, let me talk about my leadership journey in, uh, as an entrepreneur uh, more. Because, you know, in the, in, the, in the three large companies that I work in, I mean, the, the leadership role was actually... Uh, accumulation of the previous year's experience and you know your your position and your stature was automatically established as you got more and more senior but i think uh, the leadership journey when i started the firm with one individual with me and uh, and then built it up to an organization for over 1200 people i think that is where uh, my uh, years of experience uh, had to be brought in um, and the first thing that uh, was important to establish was culture uh, you know, because when you're starting a new company and it's growing fast, you're getting people from multiple uh, backgrounds, multiple organizations to come and work for you. And therefore, as a leader, it's very important to make sure that everyone starts uh, thinking similarly and pulling in the same direction, right? So something as simple as uh, marking one's attendance when you come into office, um, you know, and you're using the um, the you know, the little device where you put your thumbprint to make sure that you've, uh, uh, or, you know, we'd, we'd gone past that little uh, <laughs> arm one, uh, but, you know, we've got this digital uh, biometric uh, machine. I'm in attendance, whatever. Yeah, you know, so, so from something as simple as that to uh, making sure that we celebrate all the successes, uh, I would tell all the people that uh, uh, if there is good news and bad news, give me the bad news first. Because, uh, you know, don't hide things because, you know, if you hide things, then uh, it'll just get bigger and bigger. And ultimately, it'll end up on my table in a situation where I won't be able to easily solve it. Um, I was the oldest person in my team. So I also used to tell them that my job is to be a good goalkeeper. So I'm going to make sure that no one shoots goals into our side. Your job is to be able to take the ball and run and uh, shoot goals on the other side. Right. So I'm, I'm, I said, uh, some other people, I would give a story of, uh, you know, my job is, you know, you're driving at 100 kilometers per hour. And my job is to be there and keep clearing all the speed breakers so that, you know, you don't break your axle when you go over a speed breaker very fast. And, you know, so it was these kind of stories, uh, which I used to keep talking about. Um, I was there uh, to be as empathetic as possible when uh, individuals had any challenges or problems. And yet I was also very clear. That, you know, if on a Monday morning meeting, if the meeting time was 9 a.m. in the morning uh, and all the leadership team had to be present, uh, I had to be tough about it because people would come in at 5 past 9, people would come in at 10 past 9, and the answer would be there was traffic or there was something else. Till one day I told the secretary of the organization, the company secretary, 
I said at nine o'clock, uh, bolt the door from inside. Whoever is not uh, cannot make it till nine o'clock, will miss the meeting. I did it for two weeks, and after that, no one was ever late. You know, all that it meant was leaving your home ten minutes early on a Monday morning because that's a commitment. So you know, it it was a combination of a carrot and stick uh, leadership. It was a combination of empathy and uh, firmness. Um, it was a combination of my learnings from the past, with which was very, very large established kind of value systems, to developing my own set of uh, values for a young organization that everyone would be able to empathize with and work with. But efficiency, you just <clears throat> mentioned the meeting room, and I was thinking about the the the, the meeting goblin, whatever the, the meeting the 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 the, the, the meeting monster that, that steals. All your time and efficiency, and, and, and one of the famous ones, um, I don't think we ever implemented it here, but uh, standing, standing at meetings rather than letting people sit so it's less comfortable. Keep, uh, no, I never tried that, but that's a or great any idea. Ki- any kind of, <clears throat> but any kind of things to keep it because, you know, I agree with you about the timeliness. I, I wouldn't lock the door, I'd just start the meeting, and I don't care who wasn't at the meeting so, because it's always a bit awkward. It's you get the person. You know, like somebody comes in, it's like, we didn't wait for you. Sorry, we just started the meeting. So there is an automatic, whatever, you feel it. Like, I'm sure it felt really bad not being able to, to, to open the door. Uh, but did you do anything? I don't know. I, maybe you don't need to talk about meetings. But uh, because I'd say that that's one of the biggest like process efficiencies, any kind of efficiencies. I think that's what like the most successful companies are able to do. They, they add efficiencies into their processes or into their whether it's just the way they organize their time, as Richard would say, or the way they actually do their, I mean, would that be you a know, focus of yours? Efficiency, process efficiency, Kimon, is, is an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. So let me explain to you an, an interesting thing. You know, uh, in, 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 a, in a pharmacy, uh, at 5 p.m. in the evening is when we used to see the maximum amount of traffic. And there would be, say, 30 people waiting in, in a, you know, to get their medicines. And we used to observe, and I used to stand there personally, and I remember these uh, stories well, where, uh, you know, if I, if, I, if I gave my prescription to the pharmacist and said, okay, give me these five medicines, uh, I would wait patiently, till, uh, and I could see all the medicines being taken out from the different boxes and being, uh, you know, put onto the counter. The moment I saw that my medicines were there, then I was not willing to wait for more than 10 seconds to get my bill and pay my, make my payment. Now, that used to create a lot of arguments saying, you know, my medicines are there and the others are being served, etc. So, we came up with a very simple solution. We put a little shelf uh, at the bottom uh, of this thing. So, when the medicines were taken out, uh, these small little trays would have the medicines and the customer couldn't see anything. And... Uh, it removed all the challenges of, uh, you know, people getting frustration. frustrated and why is it taking so long? Because then he, was, he or she was waiting patiently because they wanted their medicine. So there were innumerable such instances that we went through. I mean, I'll, another in one, interesting one, and I'm reminded of this because I see the world behind uh, Richard. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, we used to have the, the, the invoice that used to be printed. Uh, without thinking, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but the invoices can be very, very long. I mean, you know, five items in your invoice could be as long as 12 inches. So I, we, we reverse engineered and we said, why are we wasting so much paper? And my IT hair actually sat down and went through it. And we reduced the 12-inch invoice to just about, uh, I think, five inches or something. 
And when we calculated, we said the amount of paper that we had saved in one year would have taken that paper strip once around the moon. And uh, so, you know, these process efficiencies keep coming over and over again. And that's a term, and it's very important as a leader to show you care about these things. Like one thing Correct. is caring, the other is communicating it and Correct. setting setting an example. And certainly, and I've I've read and heard people say that in a startup, when you're establishing a business, the first focus is always making sure that you've actually figured out that the market wants what you're offering and making sure that it happens. And once you've got that basic product market fit, then the organisation has to become obsessed about Correct. being efficient because there will be other people and. It's only like, as you say, it's an ongoing process. Even today, some new technology will be invented. That means that the old way of doing it is suboptimal. So, and did, did you have a, like an efficiency count? Did you have any process within your organization to make sure that you were always looking for new, incorporating new technologies into the way you did things to make it better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, were, there was always a team of persons who were, who were responsible for just making sure that in every area, and in a retail environment, the primary area of efficiency is on, on the shop floor or on, on the, on the, on the uh, floor of, of, of the retail you know, store. You know, how do you ensure that your goods are, uh, you know, your inventory is moving faster and your people are making sure that they're upselling, et cetera, et cetera. So it is an ongoing process with uh, several people whose responsibility was to ensure implementation. And we also, of course, had uh, uh, the process where we would say that anyone who has an idea which can help improve, uh, send it to me. And I used to look at these myself. Um, and then uh, we'll, we'll give it to the team and check it out if it was viable or not. Okay. And I've, I've, got a couple, I've got one of your books. I haven't read it yet, but I've read okay. the cover in the introduction. This is about how to retire. And yeah. On the back cover, it seemed like a lot of the things you're advocating like rules for life are the same as rules for business and one of the interesting ones the final one was learn to live alone and we talked that Kimon earlier was talking about the ego and how people are worried about what other people think and I wonder do you see the skills for life as being the same as the skills for business and do you think this and could you just reflect on why it's important to be happy when you're by yourself what where, where does that come from and is that a life skill or a business skill uh, I would say it's both. I'm sure you've heard the old line, it's, uh, it's a very lonely job at the top. You know, whether it's an entrepreneur or it's the CEO of a major company, it is a lonely job. Um, and most of us are constantly worried, and we discussed this a little earlier, about what other people think. Now, that was in, when we spoke earlier, it was in the context of a failure. But we also constantly are thinking, if I do something, will my action be judged by my friends or my neighbors or my colleagues, right? So therefore, as an entrepreneur, it is very important to be able to be at peace with themselves uh, alone. You know, I think that's an important. And again, this is not binary. When I say be at peace with yourself, does not mean that I'm saying become a recluse and don't don't socialize actually i actually interpreted it it'd be prepared for your spouse to die because you're going to be alone one way or another either <laughs> like you're just, when you're older so, you need that's how i interpreted it like, correct so, so the book that uh, uh richard is you know reading from is my book on retirement and that yeah. in that book the context yeah. is very different which is that as you start getting into retirement uh one is that when both you and your spouse are getting older uh, you need to give much more space to one another 
because you know you led busy lives throughout your life and as you get older you need but also as what you just said that if one of you goes away the other person must learn to be able to live on their own exactly so, and it makes you so feel that, more comfortable for the other spouse as well absolutely. right I mean, absolutely so it, it's both you know uh, learn to be a, you know live by yourself as an entrepreneur uh, for your own sanity of mind and learn to live alone when you are left all by yourself because children go away spouse right. goes away what do you do? I want to ask, I know we're running, we may be running out of time here, uh, but I do ask one of my, like, again, the super interesting ones. I'm, I'm the guy asking the vague general ones. No, no, please um, ask me. The, the, it's about luck. How, because everybody, you know, because you have the successful entrepreneur and, you know, and so many people want, they want exactly what you've done. I mean, they want to be, they want to, they want the career that you've had. And the question is always, you know, how much of it was your own, you know, ingenuity and hard work and how much of it was just good fortune and luck in your story? I would say, uh, you know, in every success story, there is a very substantial portion of luck. But when I say luck, uh, I also mean that, you know, every one of us are constantly getting opportunities. Now, I know of people who grab opportunities with grateful hands and then take the ball and run. There are others who let opportunities keep passing by, uh, assuming that there are some better ones coming behind. Right. So I think it's a combination of grabbing the right opportunities. And when you are going and running with the ball, then a lot of luck is needed so that you can keep, uh, you know, you don't hit uh, stones and fall down or the ball goes somewhere else. So, <laughs> so it's, it's a combination of a lot of factors. Right. I can't no, say that it's just hard work and yeah. because I'm doing something, I mean, I've made, you know, we can have a, a much longer podcast on where I failed, you know, so. <laughs> maybe we should start one that says where I failed. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast, Kimon was brainstorming ideas. I'm sure someone else has thought of this title. And sure enough, every title we came up with, there were dozens of podcasts. <laughs> We, maybe we could we could invite you back in the future. It's not a we're, we're in charge of this channel, and you know obviously we're not going to get all topics into in, into a single into a single podcast. But there's an interesting paradox between you know being happy by yourself, but as an entrepreneur, you have to be obsessed about what other people want. You know you're only going to be obsessed if, if you give customers and, and clients and organisations what they want. So there's that. So so there is that paradox. But I wanted to jump onto your motivations that, you know, if you look at the things you've done in your life, they've been quite different, like serving the corporation and the corporation's clients. It's like one world. Your own business is another. Now on your, on your, the brand of you and your authorship, you're serving like the anonymous viewer and the people you're interacting with. And is there a common theme to, common theme to the things that you've chosen to do? And maybe in answering that question, you could reflect on, your motivations for doing what you're doing now, this high volume interview series that you're you're putting a lot of time and effort into. Okay, so uh, I would say that uh, the first job with India Tobacco was more uh, from the perspective that, you know, I'd got a great job. Uh, I was 21 and a half uh, and, and then I was delighted to be standing on my own feet and, uh, you know, earning my own money. And, you know, that just... Uh, help me grow in the corporate career. Uh, as far as the motivation for my platform is concerned, I, I do believe that it is necessary for me 
uh, in this my own own uh, necessity to be able to give back i think i've had a very very uh, you know good life um and i believe that this is an opportunity for me to give back and that is now uh, you know richard kilo and you both podcasters and i'm sure you look at your analytics when i look at my analytics uh, i am amazed to see that more than 74% of my viewers and listeners are below the age of 34 mm. right now what this tells me is that the young people are actually listening because uh they're getting some value out of it right um, i'm still not getting a lot of feedback but i still I, i do get two or three messages every day from people who tell me they loved it right so i think these messages that are going back to people as is, is important what is also very important is when we, i'm 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 consciously reaching out to uh, people across the world because i believe that is one way i'll begin to get heard all over the world and uh, i am getting heard in at least i think about 45 or 46 countries but again if you look at uh, the analytics and we started from india about 66% of my listeners are in india 22% are in the us 3 and a half 4% are in the uk and the balance is spread across the other countries so what i think i'm beginning to do is to start giving back to a lot of uh, people who to a lot of the listeners some knowledge lessons and now we are beginning to curate uh, you know extracts from multiple guests and combining them into uh, one 10 12 minute podcast which is by subject so example one question i have asked every single uh, entrepreneur is what do you think are the basic mistakes startup entrepreneurs make now i have i have 200 answers to this one question and each answer is between one and a half to two minutes so now can you imagine i've got 400 odd minutes of such answers i can combine it into 10 10 minute slots which we did experiment with and one of the major indian newspapers Uh, has started putting it out on uh, their uh, podcast platform you know basic mistakes people make is it good to be uh, is is it good for an entrepreneur to go solo or should you have a co-founder what are the steps you need to look out for when you are raising money and so on very interesting well i uh, in the follow up i'll i'll ask for a few links to some of that because i think some of these things people listening to this might be interested in checking sure. on a link and 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 seeing seeing that but is it um, obviously you're giving a platform to other people in answering your asking your questions mm-hmm. when you're doing this it's also there's always the question of like the reflected ego if you hang out with other people people look at you and are the if you were thinking about the ideas that that are your ideas that you are the particular things that you think well if someone really studies what i've written and what i've what the interviews i've done you know are there a few things is the one thing or a, a few, three things that the ashutosh message that you'd like to get across to your to your audiences um number one is i have never been worried about uh, i'd say when copying what i'm doing because i've always said uh, that if someone is copying me that means what my message is is working right yeah copying is uh, the best form of flattery correct right uh, and success so so if 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 someone is beginning to copy what i'm doing then my model is obviously working so i think that is one very important factor the other factor is that if uh, you know when when it comes to knowledge and uh, when it comes to being a thought leader i don't think uh, 
too many people can just copy what you are saying because when you are talking uh, without a piece of paper when you are talking without any kind of prompts then only if it is there inside you will you be able to speak so openly and honestly otherwise uh, you know i would constantly be looking at what my next uh, answer should be so uh, i think uh, especially when it comes to uh, you know things like and again i must add a uh, you know um, a qualifier which is that uh, you know i'm not doing anything which is rocket science i am not doing anything which is you know something which 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 uh, will 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 have severe ipr issues uh, you know create some kind of uh, problems in my own wealth so uh, if if i can figure out a way for it to be spread across multiple people so be it very good um and as as Kim said we're we're drawing towards the end but if you think about where this journey is going to take you I, I, with your different business you you exited the cor- corporate career you exited your your pharmacy retail business um and you had a vision to be the boots of india do you have a vision of where your your podcast and youtube channels are going to end up like is there a destination that when you achieve that goal you'll think yes i i've done this now and you'll stop and move on to something else or could you could you carry on doing this till the day you die uh well i don't know what in the day i die but i certainly think for the next 2 years i would like to do this um because uh, i'm actually enjoying the the incredible conversations i have with so many people i mean you know uh, i've had i've had uh, you know spoken to uh, an incredible range of people you know from sportsmen to politicians to business leaders to entrepreneurs and this is across the world and you may recall that i was for example you know i asked you a question what success means to you um you know in my first season i used to ask this question you know what is your biggest learning from your biggest failure and i actually was able to use the lockdown period to write a new book so i was telling my wife the other day i said well i've got so much data on what success means maybe it's time for me to write a new book on what is success so what success you know so so there's a lot of great stuff available um you know i've always had this philosophy or thinking that if when i wake up in the morning and i say oh no i've got to get back to work again that's the time when i need to change and as of now uh, i certainly uh, look forward to the three days when i do my interviews and i haven't reached that stage at well you know why am i doing this interviews you know the day that happens i think that's when i will look for a change mm-hmm. excellent well if you if you make it to, if i'm living in krakow kim is still living in krakow if you make it to krakow it'd be very nice to have a, a meal together and i look forward to that i'd invite you to my house if if we're allowed to meet face to face i hope yeah. the virus will be behind us kimon's a keen golfer so i would okay yeah i was going to if we had had more time i would have gone down that route but i believe that to, i'll take you, okay if you come here i'll take you golfing how does that sound <laughs> there's yeah, a very no. good course there's a very good course here okay and 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 and, and uh, that offers uh, holds from my side <laughs> also so let me reciprocate if you come to india and I mean, I I have been to Krakow. You haven't been to India, so maybe oh, it's wow. time for Europe. Yes, I would love. I've never yeah. been to India. I'm very. Yeah. I, I'm. I will actually for sure be in yeah. India at some point. You know, we we spent um, we spent about four days in Krakow because we from there we went to uh, Auschwitz, Birkenau, the, right. the 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 mines, salt, salt mines, or whatever they yeah. call salt mines. So we spent some time there. It's a beautiful city. Yes, it's a group. So for anyone listening who's wondering, visit visit India as. 
as we haven't done and you, where you live, visit, visit Cracker where, where Kimon and I are. And I look forward. there are some projects that I think I alerted you when we were last speaking that I'd like to follow up on, but that's mm-hmm. not the topic for today. So sure. I, Kimon, do you have any final question or? No, this was, thank you for the time. I mean, really thank fascinating, you. really interesting. You, these things, you always feel like you could go on forever, basically, because you're, you, you know, how come to get to distill your life and your experience in an hour is hard, but I thought it was really interesting. I appreciate your time. Thanks for Thank that. you very much. Thank you. So, so, so this is Richard and Kimon and Ashutosh saying, and to our listeners, thank you very much for giving us the time and attention because time is the one resource you can't buy more of. We appreciate your attention. If, if you like this podcast, please introduce other people to it. Give us a positive review and share it. And we look forward to meeting you next time. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks.